open up to uh, Exodus chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse 9. And look at God's call to the to his covenant people here to consecrate themselves to him. And we're going to look at what that means and the implications uh, not only for the Israelites, but for us today. As we look back early on in, in Exodus chapter 19 there, the first thing that we encountered there is, is that God presents, um, presents the covenant agreement to uh, the Israelites. And he presents this before them uh, in chapter 19, in verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now it's on that basis then um, that God is going to establish his uh, covenant with them. He says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is is the covenant relationship that God presents to them, that there is... uh, that God establishes this covenant with them and there is something for them to do to uphold their part of the covenant. And, and so their response then, as Moses brings this word from the Lord to the people, is in verse 8 there, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God's people have heard God's terms and agreed apparently, that it is their reasonable response to the Lord who would save them and rescue them with such miraculous power is to say yes. So now the Lord takes the next step in this covenant relationship with them as we pick it up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So the, um, the, the, what the Lord says to Moses is, now God's, we know because we've been going through the book of Exodus that early on God uh, established Moses to be his spokesperson, his ambassador, his mediator between him and, and the Israelites. And so God would speak to Moses, Moses would speak to the people on behalf of God, and then Moses would also interact with God on behalf of the people. And... Um, God has established that already, that relationship with Moses. But the people have often kind of pushed back against the idea that Moses has any authority or uh, they've, they've pushed back to, against the idea that they need to really listen to Moses uh, or abide by what he speaks on behalf of God. God here is saying he's going to establish through some very clear means Um, visible and auditory means before the people as he meets with Moses, he's going to just prove once and for all that it is God who is meeting with Moses. It is God who's imparting truth and revelation to Moses. 
And so the words Moses speaks then are from God. And that's what God says he's going to do um, as he meets here with his people and with Moses specifically. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Um, We're going to get more into this next week, but um, one of the things, just a, a brief note on this, Um, that when we get to the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, one of the things that John does in his Gospel under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is to lay out a slew from beginning to end, a slew of witnesses to show us who Jesus is. Now, God is really big on the establishment of witnesses. We'll see this early on here in the Old Testament. That for, for a claim to be brought against somebody, there needed to be witnesses. Um, and so in John's Gospel, God presents witness after witness after witness after witness that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is Messiah. Um, the Word of God. Uh, the prophets. Um, uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, they're just a, a, His works. Jesus Himself. There's a whole slew of witnesses. And so what God is going to do, as we'll get into next week, is establish a a witness among the people that Moses is my guy. I'm speaking through Him. So we're going to kind of shove off from that idea here into uh, the next part of this text. And we'll double back around next week to flesh that uh, verse 9 out more. But going on here, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, um, the words that uh, apparently that are spoken here in verse 8, that they agree that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. So the people promised to do all that the Lord would command them to do to uphold their part of the covenant relationship with God. And so the next step here is for the Lord to to take them deeper in understanding who He is and how they are to approach Him and interact with Him. God is going to uh, teach them here about the magnitude of His holiness that they, in other words, that God is different than man. Now, mankind has been created in the image of God, but God is not like man. Um, There's a likeness about us that reflects the glory of our Creator, but we do not possess the same glory that our Creator does. There's a difference between us. Not only is there a separation from, between us and God, an otherliness about the Lord, but there's also a moral purity about the Lord that we do not possess. And so God is holy. He is set apart from us. And He is morally uncorrupted. Whereas we are morally corrupt. The, the uh, most righteous among mankind are still filthy in moral corruption as compared 
to our holy and righteous God. And so God is going to establish here among his people this understanding or begin to develop this understanding with them that you may not approach God like, like your normal daily tasks. The God, God is not like man and you may not approach him as just a man. Um, and, you know, we see, uh, we see all kinds of, of imagery of Christ, um, uh, statues, paintings, all kinds of, of things. And sometimes we see these images that present Christ like, hey, friend. And Christ has called us friend, but he is holy, righteous God who calls us friend. He is not my buddy I sat next to in grade school, friend. He is God become flesh and dwelt among us and died on the cross for my sins to call me friend. And God wants His people to begin to understand that this relationship is not established as two people coming together, but as a holy, righteous God reaching from heaven to earth to establish relationship with morally corrupt people who continue to betray Him and rebel against Him. That there is a distinction between holy God and man. So that they may see the glory of God, His great love, His great faithfulness, His grace, His mercy, more clearly. In Isaiah chapter 6, turn there with me if you would. middle of your Bible, roughly, you'll find Psalm, and then to the right of that, you uh, will fairly quickly get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet chosen by God to speak his words on behalf of him, kind of like Moses, to speak on behalf of God to God's people. Now, Isaiah, um, of course, I don't have any proof of this, but uh, certainly... Isaiah was likely one of the most, speaking in terms of, of uh, humankind here, um, compared to humanity anyways, Isaiah would have been one of the most righteous people in existence at this time. And so with that in mind, a man who is devoted entirely, he has devoted himself to the Lord, to speaking what the Lord would have him speak, to doing what the Lord would have him do, a man who seeks to walk with God daily, moment by moment, and not stray from that, who is, has consecrated himself to the Lord, set, him par, set himself apart for the purposes of God. So this, this is the man we're talking about. Isaiah chapter 6, and I want you to see how he handles an encounter with God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. Now, just to pause there for a second, what Isaiah describes to us is that there are beings whose sole purpose in creation is to to speak of God's glory and worship him. Now, there are kind of two ways to think about this. One is to think, wow, God is so insecure. He needs people to reinforce him about how great he is, which we know is not accurate. The other one is that, like Jesus says, in, 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 on, uh, the sun, on that day that he rolls into Jerusalem and all of his disciples are s- shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the religious leaders say, hey, make them be quiet. And he says, if they don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out. That's more accurate of a picture of what we're talking about here, that the holy, holiness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God is so incredible that something needs to give expression to this. So there are beings whose sole purpose is to pronounce the glory and holiness of God. And they are outfitted with one set of wings to locomote around and two other sets of wings by which they cover themselves because of God's great holiness and glory. So beings who are not sinful human beings, not morally corrupt beings, and yet they shield themselves even from God's glory and holiness. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you know as we look through Scripture at all the attributes of God um, that are pronounced throughout Scripture, the one that we see in triplicate is His holiness. Holy, holy, holy. When, scripture re- when there's something repeated in Scripture, it marks significance. So for it to be repeated three times uh, just magnifies that. Holiness is the essence of who God is. Morally uncorrupted and incorruptible. Morally pure. He is so other than us that we can't relate to Him as we relate to one another. There is such a large gap between who we are and who He is that the only way for us to approach Him and know Him is when He makes Himself available to be known by us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That, just that that uh, the whole earth is full of His glory gives us this picture that in the expanse of, of, of all of the earth, which, I mean, you know, I don't know if, if you like to get out and walk or hike, but how long it takes me just to cover like 10 miles? And when you back up and, and look at the globe, you can't even put a, mar- a dot that's small enough to mark the, what I just walked in 10 miles, right? It's such a, insignificant amount that I can cover even in a day if I were to walk all day long the amount of terrain I can cover is still such an insignificant amount of the whole expanse of the earth and yet the glory of God fills the earth like it is not enough in the expanse of the world that 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 we couldn't possibly even fathom in the expanse of that it's still not enough to contain the glory of God 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So at the presence of God and the pronouncement of his holiness and his glory, inanimate objects began quaking. And I said, Woe to me, this is Isaiah, at the encounter with, of, of the holy, holy, holy. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah the righteous of the righteous among mankind. What he says here is not some kind of self-pity. Oh, woe is me. What Isaiah is giving expression to is he, he is beside himself. He cannot find adequate words to describe that he feels like he's just going to utterly be pulled apart at this moment. At the confrontation of the Holy of Holies. He is so overwhelmed by God's holiness and glory that he feels like he's just going to be utterly and completely destroyed in this moment with this encounter. And he recognizes that the righteous of the righteous here says, woe is me, I am morally corrupt. I'm a man of unclean lips. And what's more than that, I belong to a people of unclean lips. He distinguishes the difference between himself and righteous, holy Lord. Not only am I a sinner, but I belong to a race of sinners. My people are sinners. Those that I come from, my heritage, a lineage of morally corrupt people. So I'm not an anomaly among my people when I declare myself a sinner before a holy and righteous God. And he recognizes, you are holy, holy, holy. I am sinner, sinner, sinner. I am morally corrupt, morally corrupt. I am sinner among a people of sinners. He recognizes there is a gap and I'm going to be destroyed by this encounter. Verse 6 then, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. How may Isaiah approach the Holy of Holies? He may approach when God makes him acceptable. Isaiah can do nothing to make himself acceptable to the Holy of Holies. God makes Isaiah acceptable. God is the one who purifies him and presents him to himself as pure and acceptable. This is the very thing that God's people are going to need to begin to comprehend about the Holy One who has saved them and has established a covenant relationship with them. That this is the Holy, Holy, Holy One. 
who calls them and who is about to meet with them. And so he tells Moses to consecrate them, to let them wash their garments. Now there's a, the word consecrate here means to devote, to dedicate, to set apart, to sanctify. It, it means to, to take something and give it fully for a purpose. So um, if you have a toolbox, you have tools that are consecrated for certain jobs. And you know that if you use the tool for the wrong job, it doesn't work, right? So you consecrate this tool for that job. It has a purpose for which it is designated. I don't use a hammer to change a tire, right? It has a purpose. God is saying if my, my people, as I meet with them, need to set themselves apart. Apart from whatever is normal to them, they need to set themselves apart from that for me. And one of the signs of what needs to take place here is he says, let them wash their garments. Now there's kind of a couple ways in which we should understand what this, what this really implies and means. Washing the garments, he's literally saying wash the garments, wash your clothes, right? clean up. Um, so that is, that's literally what he says. And there's an implication that goes along with that that we understand in hindsight because we have the benefit of the context of all of Scripture and we know why Christ came. And so we see something else in this that is beyond just the literal washing of clothes. So, you know, it, um, it, we're, we're pretty casual here as we gather together. But... Um, where, where I grew up going to church, it was pretty normal fare to wear a shirt and tie and, you know, your, we would call it your Sunday best, right? You just, you're polished up different than every other day to come to, come to church and, and gather with others to worship. Now, I'm not here to make a commentary on whether that's a should or shouldn't. I mean, I appreciate you guys shine yourself up a bit before you come. That's, I think that's just... At the least, good etiquette, right? So, but one of the things that is entailed in that is the idea that we don't come to God just on our terms. We don't go before the holy and righteous God however we want. But that we set ourselves apart for that purpose. That, that something different is required of us to fellowship with him. Now, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a blessed time where God has promised to those who believe the pre- his presence daily, moment by moment, in the Holy Spirit. And so, this looks different for us than it did for them, where this is a moment encounter with the holy and righteous God, where they are to consecrate themselves, and there's a visible consecration that happens. But what's deeper than this visible consecration, the the shining up of the outside, is the implication that there's a moral corruption also that sets them apart from God. That their clothes, their dirty clothes, are a reminder of uh, just, I guess in layman's terms here, a dirty soul. Um, And so there is a, a sin issue that 
is here not going to be entirely addressed, but is, is made clear just in the idea that you don't just, you're not just coming to the Lord as you are, having, having kind of knocked off for the day in the field and show up in, in your dirty clothes, but you're, you're going, you need to take a bath, you need to wash your clothes, you need to set yourself apart for this encounter with God. Ultimately, what this does for us in the context of the whole of Scripture is it points to Christ. Because just as Isaiah needed someone, needed God, to make him presentable, acceptable to himself, sinners need God to make us acceptable to Him. And so this even this simple thing of washing their garments is one way in which Exodus once again points forward to Christ. That there is a need here for mankind to be purified, cleansed. And their best efforts are never going to achieve that. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Uh, Turn there, verse 20. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, there is nothing that anybody is going to do to make themselves morally purified in the eyes of God. Verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see that? So mankind cannot make himself righteous even even in all of his efforts to try and perfectly uphold the law of God. He will fall short. But God gives his righteousness to mankind through Jesus Christ. And then he says, for there's no distinction. That is, there's no difference between us. It's like Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. There's no distinction, even though we might look at Isaiah and say, he's the righteous of the righteous. But when he encounters a holy and righteous God, he recognizes, I'm one among many sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So through Christ's sacrifice, our sins are wiped clean. That by faith in him, the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the purity of Christ is applied to us. That, that our Lord, our judge, doesn't look upon us 
as a man or a woman of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips, but he looks at us with, with the purity, with the, with the perspective of the purity of Christ applied to us. It is a gift, God's grace. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 12, continuing on here in Exodus 19. So God establishes here that they are going to need to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves, to devote themselves to this meeting with the Lord. Verse 12, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, um, presumably with an arrow or something here. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. In other words, you may approach on his terms. There is a boundary established here where, where God is teaching them about covenant relationship with a holy and righteous God, and he sets up a boundary and says, this, this is off limits um, this, this is the place where I'm at, and you may approach on my terms, not on your terms. And there's a, a very severe um, uh, consequence for violating those terms. Because God is not man, and we may not approach him with the arrogance of mankind that we approach one another with the presumption that I move into your space and, hey, we're both equals. We may not approach God like that. We're not equals. And at the foundation of this is really the understanding that Israel can't have it both ways. That is, they cannot have a belonging to a holy and righteous God who saves them and live however they want. Those two things are not compatible. To belong to God and then live and carry themselves and do whatever pleases them. That as the people of God, they're going to have to live in a way that is set apart from what they had previously known, from what the world around them knows. And this is true for us today. God is going to require the Israelites that if they are going to to, to belong to Him, that they walk in His ways. That is part of the covenant relationship. Galatians chapter 5 gives us Uh, some good understanding of what this looks like for us in Christ. 
Galatians 5, uh, we'll start in verse 16. This is the passage that we often think of. Uh, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But one of the things that um, is established in this passage is the contrast um, between living according to the flesh, living according to our desires, living according to what, how, what we want to do, and living according to God. Walking in our ways versus walking in His ways. And that they're not just different, they are antithetical, is that the right word? They're opposed to each other. They, they're not only uh, just two things that are hard to get along, it's like oil and water. There is no mixing of the two. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So to walk by the Spirit is to not walk according to the flesh, those sinful desires. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I, warn you, I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, the, the stuff of our broken soul in its natural state, apart from Christ, is not sufficient for gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. Is not sufficient for fellowship with our Creator. Is not sufficient for making ourselves acceptable to Him. It is in contrast to His ways. Verse 22 then sets up what, what it looks like if we are consecrated to Him. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The way of Christ is against the, the way of natural man. That is, in our sinful condition, what we are prone to do is to walk a path that leads utterly away from God, not toward Him. If we are to walk a path that leads us into the city of God, it is the way of the Spirit, not the way of our desires and our passions and our inclinations and our ambitions. But it is to take that person, who we were before Christ, and crucify that person to put them to death, that we walk now in the Spirit and not in the flesh. That's what's being established here. And then he says, uh, in that last verse that we read, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, that we consider ourselves 
dead to that person we were before we came to Christ and alive now to God in Christ, that we live for him, that we are set apart now for him. And so the people, as, as we see here, that, that those two things, walking with God um, and walking in our own desires, are incompatible. That, that is what one of the principles here that God is establishing with his people. And so they're to set themselves apart for this meeting with God, that there are boundaries which they must abide by here. The people were to prepare themselves Verse 14, when Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. Verse 15, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So what, is, what Moses here is, is connecting to um, their preparation is an abstaining from even the, the God-given um, uh, pleasure of sexual intercourse for the purpose of setting apart this meeting with God from all their normal daily stuff. This, this is not normal daily stuff to have this face-to-face meeting with God. Now, this fleshes out differently for you and I living in the Spirit, where God is present with us all the time, where Scripture actually says we are the temple of the living God because He resides in us all the time. And so this looks different because we don't, we don't, there's not a mountain where we go to where God resides and we go to that mountain. But rather, God resides right here. So what it looks like to set ourselves apart for Him actually is going to look different because if God resides here all the time, then my consecration needs to happen here all the time. Right? That I am living and purposing myself for His glory all the time. Not just that one occasion where I go to the mountain. Now, ultimately, God wanted his people to learn to live in this kind of a way as a way of living set apart for his glory. And so the, the consecration even extended into um, the, their relationship with their spouses to abstain from sexual intercourse as a means of just saying, God is coming and we are preparing ourselves and setting ourselves aside for this, for this meeting. Moses was God's ambassador and mediator to his people. And so God calls Moses, he says, to consecrate my people. Now, the interesting thing here is God is fully aware of what he's instructing Moses to do. God is not telling Moses to positionally um, to uh, functionally at the heart level make the people holy and pure. But what God is instructing Moses to do is to lead his people in setting themselves apart for him. Moses has no power to ultimately forgive their sins 
to make them morally pure and acceptable to the holy and righteous God. But he is called to lead the people in that. Moses is a what we would call here a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. There is a likeness to Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, yet he is not Christ. So Moses is called to lead the people in setting themselves apart for God, yet he cannot do that in and of himself. It points forward to the coming of Messiah who can and does make mankind acceptable to God, forgiven and clean. Moses could only lead them that direction. Jesus Christ does the work himself. Jesus sets himself apart as a holy sacrifice and then through his sacrifice then sets us apart acceptable to God. Look at John chapter 17 verse 19 as Jesus prays and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The two words here, consecrate and sanctified, are, are the same word. It is, but obviously there's a, a different way in which they're a, a little, there's a, a difference in the way that they're applied here. One is that Jesus says, I, I consecrate myself to this purpose for which you have sent me, Father, to be a holy sacrifice for sinners so that they may be consecrated, sanctified, devoted, set apart, dedicated in truth. That is that positionally, they're, they're morally corrupt and, and may not enter the kingdom of God, but through His holy sacrifice at the cross, he can, His righteousness is applied to those who are morally corrupt so that they may become presentable to God that sinners may enter the kingdom of God through the righteousness of Christ. This is something Moses could not do, but which our Savior has done for us. Jesus, not ourselves, makes us acceptable to God. So when we take all this in, the question then is, how now shall we live? Right? when we begin to understand that we have a holy and righteous God that we're going to be held accountable to and that none of us are going to measure up. If the righteous of the righteous in Isaiah can't measure up against the holiness of God, then we don't have a chance on our own. But that Christ became our holy sacrifice for us to make us presentable to God and acceptable to Him, fully acceptable to Him. So how do we live? How do we live consecrated lives? That is, lives that are devoted to Him, set apart for Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is a, uh, I think a, gives us uh, quite a bit of insight into what life looks like for the believer in Christ. For those who are, how do we live in a way that's set apart for Him? As a result of all He's done for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now therefore, or now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written uh, to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now there are two things here with day of the Lord that, that come with that expression. One is the judgment of God against those who reject him, against sin. And the other one is salvation for those who believe in him. And so he says, you know that the day of the Lord's coming. Verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. In other words, you have been given the truth of God. You know that Christ is returning. You know that Christ is coming and those who are without Him will be judged and those who are with Him will receive salvation. You know this is coming. You know you've been warned that that He is returning. So let us not walk around in ignorance like we haven't been given this information. Like God hasn't revealed this to us. Verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So there are three things here that God presents to us through the Apostle Paul that that give us an understanding of what it looks like to live a life set apart for Him so that we are among those who are not asleep at the wheel here, but are awake that we might live with Him. First one is, keep awake. God has revealed this truth to us that we are sinners, we we need His forgiveness, and we have received it through Christ, and He is returning to judge mankind once and for all, and those who have received Him by faith will be brought into the kingdom of life. We know this truth. So we can do, we can do what the rest of humanity does who does not know Him and just like go through, go through the motions of this life like there is no eternal consequence for anything. We can do that. But Paul says, wake up! Live awake, eyes open to the reality and truth that Jesus is returning. And the second thing is this, to put on faith in Christ, the love of God, and the hope of salvation. How do we do do that? How do we put on faith, love, and hope? Well, one is to make sure that we are continually standing on and 
and being connected to the Word of God that we are continually reminded of who He is, that He is revealing Himself to us through His Word increasingly as we encounter His Word. That we might understand who He is more completely and understand the gift that He has given us more fully. And as we do that, the Word of God and the Spirit of God bring to us a greater understanding and awareness that we are a people of unclean lips whom God has made acceptable to Him. The other part of that is fellowship. That as we spend time with fellow believers, we are continually encouraged that uh, just the nature of gathering with other believers is, is to be encouraged that uh, with the reminder that Christ died for us. God loves us so incredibly. And we have a hope that, that is beyond this earth that we are living for. And so we don't walk around like those who are without Christ, who are asleep to the idea that they're going to be held accountable to their Creator or that salvation has been made available to them, but we are among those who are awake, who walk together towards eternal life, the hope of heaven, the salvation that God is bringing to us. And the third thing is, along with that, to encourage one another and build one another up. Those three things certainly not, don't represent the entirety of what the consecrated life looks like, but are certainly three things that for us are represented in our life as we live it set apart for Him to put on or to keep awake, to put on faith, love, and a hope of salvation, and to encourage and build one another up. Now, I don't know where you are with the Lord if you have received Him by faith at this point of your life yet. But today is a day that God has given you to receive Him. To receive His forgiveness. There is a day, I promise you, these are not my words. These are the words of the Holy and Righteous One who wants you to be awake and understand what's coming. The promise is there is a day coming when you and I will be held accountable for our moral corruption before a holy and righteous God. We will be held accountable for that. And we will not receive the kingdom of life. The kingdom of God. We will not enter in based on our own uh, moral purity. We may only enter in through Christ. Only Christ can forgive us of our sins and make us acceptable to our holy and righteous judge. And God has given you right here, right now, as this moment where you are alive and awake to this understanding that you may receive His forgiveness right now by faith, by asking Him for it and repenting of your sins, by saying, Lord Jesus, I will never be able to enter into your kingdom by anything I can do, but only by your righteousness please come in and give me your righteousness that I may be acceptable to my holy creator. And for everyone who calls him Lord and Savior by faith, 
Let us live our lives for that which we are, children of God, the people who belong to him. So let us live like that. Let us live up to that which God has already made us, children of the holy and righteous God who gives life and forgiveness to all who believe, who has made us the place where he dwells. So let us not walk around like we did before we came to Christ as just another human being. We are the place where God dwells every moment. That's why what Paul writes to the Corinthians with, with such fervency and power. He says, you are the place where God dwells. So live like that. So let us live consecrated to God. Father, thank you for the work that you have done on the cross through your son Jesus Christ to bring forgiveness of sins to us, to impart to us a holiness and a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own, that we may enter in to your kingdom, to enter into heaven, Lord, not based on anything that we can bring to it because we will utterly fall short of that, but based on the righteousness of of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who became our sacrifice. Lord, I ask that you would help us to live lives that are set apart for you. And that everybody here today, Lord, would hear your call to belong to you, to receive you by faith, to receive your forgiveness, to receive the righteousness of Christ, that our filthy rags would be washed white, through the blood of Christ on the cross. Lord, we, we just are so thankful for the work that you have done. Ask for your strength, for your power in living out the truth that you have made us children of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider what Christ has done for us and ha- the righteousness that, of Christ that is applied to us through the cross, we now come to our time of communion together. I want to read the, to you the rest of First Thessalonians 5. It gets more specific about what the life consecrated to God looks like, the characteristics of what our daily life will look like. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and, and, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And here's the kicker. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. Lord, bless and keep you.